welcome to this evening's um, meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's a great pleasure to welcome Heather Logue, uh, who was recently appointed to a lectureship at Leeds, 2009, after completing her PhD at MIT. Um, her research interests are mainly in um, philosophy of mind and epistemology, particularly on the philosophy of perception. She's published a number of papers on philosophy of perception in leading articles, and has also written a number of papers with Alex Byrne, with whom she also edited a collection of readings on disjunctivism. And the title of the paper that she's going to present this evening is Why Naive Realism? Thanks very much. Thanks very much for coming. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, so I take it that you've gathered from the title of the paper, the focus of my talk is going to be why should we endorse this view known as naive realism. But before I answer that question, I should tell you what naive realism is, or at least what I take it to be. So in the first instance, it's a theory of veridical experience, that is, an experience in which, in which a subject perceives things and they appear to the subject to have certain properties because the subject perceives those properties. So to use an example, I'm currently having, I take it, a vertical visual experience of this banana, right? I see it, and it looks to me to be yellow and crescent-shaped because I perceive its yellowness and its crescent-shapedness, right? So contrast an illusory experience as of a yellow banana, where the banana is in fact green, right? It looks yellow to me, right? That's the respect in which it's illusory, but not because I perceive its yellowness. It doesn't have any yellowness for me to perceive. So some people have tried to extend something like a naive realist view to illusory experiences, um, but just to simplify matters, I'm going to take it to be just a theory of vertical experience for the purposes of this paper. Okay, so I've said that naive realism is a theory of vertical experience, at least in the first instance. What does it say about vertical experience? So I take it that naive realism is the view that vertical experience fundamentally consists in the subject perceiving things in her environment and some of their properties, right? So to stick with the example, um, according to the naive realist, my vertical experience of this banana fundamentally consists in my perceiving this banana as well as its yellowness and its crescent shapedness. Now, of course, everyone agrees, or practically everyone agrees except for idealists, um, that the subject of a veridical experience perceives things in her environment and some of their properties, right? But not everyone agrees that that's what veridical experience fundamentally consists in, right? So I take it that's the controversial claim that the naive realist is making, but I need to tell you a bit about what I understand this term fundamentally to mean. So in order to understand what I mean by fundamentally, we need to think a little bit about what it is we're doing when we're giving a philosophical theory of perceptual experience. So I take it we're trying to explain at least three broad kinds of things. So when you have a vertical experience, or experience in general, say, as of a yellow crescent-shaped banana, all other things being equal, you're going to go on to believe that there's a yellow crescent-shaped thing before you, right? So experiences play a certain sort of epistemological role. They naturally generate certain beliefs and not others. And we'd want our theory of perceptual experience to explain the epistemological role of experience. Similarly, um, uh, when I have an experience as of a yellow banana, that contributes something to what it's like for me, the sort of phenomenal character of my overall mental state. And we want our theory of perceptual experience uh, to explain why my experience has the phenomenal character it does and not some different phenomenal character. And of course, experiences also play a role 
in guiding and facilitating action, right? So if I fancy eating a banana, right, on the basis of my experience, I'm going to, you know, reach in certain ways and orient my hand in certain ways in order to make that happen, right? So there are at least three things that when we're giving a philosophical theory of perceptual experience, you want to explain its epistemological role, its phenomenal character, its role in facilitating action, right? And so what an experience fundamentally consists in is the most basic personal level psychological facts in virtue of which an experience has those features, right? The most basic personal level psychological facts that explain why my experience has the phenomenal character character it does, why it has the epistemological role it does, and and how it facilitates action in the way it does. Um, So, of course, there are other things that would play a role in explaining those phenomena, right? So there um, there are subpersonal psychological facts, right? So there's information processing that goes on between the stimulation of my sensory organs and my having of the experience, right? So that's not really what philosophers are trying to pinpoint when they're explaining what's going on when we're having perceptual experiences. And similarly, there are um, non-psychological things that are explanatorily relevant to all of those features of experience identified that I identified, right? So there are certain neurological facts and chemical facts, right? So that's not what philosophers are trying to put their fingers on when they're trying to give explanations of um, these various features of experience. What they're interested in is the most basic, personal-level psychological facts. And the different theories of perceptual experience are, as I see it, different theories about what those most basic, personal-level psychological facts are. So... So I hope the podcast still picks this up. So let's take naive realism. So you've got the subject, and we're talking about vertical experience here. The subject's bearing the perceptual relation to the banana and certain of its properties, yellowness, crescent shapedness, and so forth. What the naive realist says the experience fundamentally consists in is this state of affairs, right? So what's the most basic explanation of all of those features I identified? this psychological fact, the subject bearing the perceptual relation to this thing and some of its properties. And so we can, it's helpful to get a grip on what the debate's about by contrasting naive realism with its main competitor. That would be intentionalism. And so it, of course, comes in a variety of different flavors, if you like, but the common thread running through all of them is that perceptual experiences of all kinds, critical or not, fundamentally consist in the subject representing her environment as being a certain way. So the intentionalist thinks that when the subject's having a vertical experience, the subject's in a representational state. You know, perhaps the content being represented is that there's a yellow crescent-shaped thing before one. Of course, there are lots of debates about what exactly the content would be, but that's just one candidate. And so the intentionalist would draw the experience circle in a different place, if you like. So what the intentionalist thinks, uh, all experience, (laughs) including vertical experience, uh, fundamentally consistent is this, the subject being in a representational state. Right? So we have different um, hypotheses, if you like, about what the most basic personal level psychological explanation of phenomenal character, the epistemological role of experience, and the role it plays in facilitating action. The naive realist says, in the case of vertical experience, at least it's this, whereas the intentionalist says that um, in all cases, all different kinds of experience, um, this is what the basic explanation is. Right, so that's, that's what I mean by fundamentally, and that's what I take the, the debate broadly to be about. Okay, so now we've got a grip on 
what naive realism is. It's a theory of vertical experience that says that, well, look, what vertical experience fundamentally consists in is this state of affairs. Now, arguably, naive realism entails what, what's known as disjunctivism about perceptual experience. So very roughly, disjunctivism is the view that vertical experiences and at least total hallucinations are fundamentally different. Right? And the route from naive, naive realism to disjunctivism is pretty straightforward. Right? So if you're going to say that vertical experience fundamentally consists in perceiving things in your physical environment and some of their properties, you're not going to be able to say that about at least total hallucinations, right? Because total hallucinations are, by definition, experiences in which the subject doesn't perceive anything at all in her environment, right? <laughs> so you can't straightforwardly extend this account to what's going on in hallucinations. So you need to give a, whatever you say, it's going to be totally different, right? Um, so there are people who I take to be naive realists who deny this. Um, Mark Johnston um, is the person I have in mind. But most naive realists, I think, rightly uh, think that they're committed to disjunctivism about perceptual experience. Now, most of the, the literature on, on this issue um, is focused on disjunctivism, right? So we've got naive realism. Most naive realists say, okay, well, if we're going to be naive realists, we have to be disjunctivists and give a totally different account of what's going on in hallucination. <laughs> and critics of, of naive realism and disjunctivism have focused their critical fire, as it were, on the disjunctivist component of that package, right? So they um, have lots of arguments as to what, you know, for the conclusion that disjunctivism isn't a viable, uh, doesn't give a viable account of hallucination and so on and so forth. But I think it's really interesting that not a whole lot has been said about why we should endorse the view that pushes us to disjunctivism in the first place. Now, of course, naive realists have had a lot to say about that. But what I think is really interesting is that their opponents haven't really picked up on the motivations for the view that give rise, for, give rise to disjunctivism in the first place. So, so that's what I want to do today. I want to focus on why should we endorse this naive realist view that ends up committing, committing us to disjunctivism about perceptual experience. So in the remainder of the talk, I'm going to do two things. So there's a, a negative um, component to the paper and a positive component to the paper. So the negative component involves discussing three of the main arguments for naive realism in the literature. And I, I ultimately think that they're unsatisfactory. I think perhaps they can be patched up in certain ways, but I don't find them compelling. So I've been attracted to naive realism, but none of the reasons I've been given so far have really convinced me you know, that, that, that they're picking up on what's so good about naive realism. right? Um, so I think that all of the, the arguments out there can be resisted in various ways. And so I've looked elsewhere for a different motivation for the view. So that's what I'm going to do in the final section. I'm going to develop and defend an argument for naive realism that I take to be more promising than the ones that are currently out there. Okay. So moving on to the second section, unsatisfactory arguments for naive realism. So a couple of caveats to start. Um, so if you've read the paper that's been posted, I won't be talking about the, the motivation for naive realism that's given it its name. Right, so I take it the reason why naive realism is called naive realism is the thought that this theory of vertical experience is the naive or common sense view. Right? So I have, I have thoughts about that motivation. I don't think it works, but I'm not, for time's sake, going to go into those right now um, because nobody ultimately rests their case on that motivation for naive realism. So what I'm going to do is focus on um, the, the baskets in which naive realists put all their eggs, as it were. Right? So, 
So the first argument I'm going to talk about is the appeal to sensory imagination that you find in Mike Martin's 2002 paper, The Transparency of Experience. So the idea there is that if you look just at perceptual experience, we're not going to find anything that will help us decide between naive realism and intentionalism, right? But if we look to certain features of sensory imagination, then we can settle the debate. So sensory imagination is just supposed to be a species of imagination that, as the name suggests, has a distinctively sensory component, right? There's a certain sort of phenomenal character that goes along with these episodes of imagining that's very similar to the phenomenal character we enjoy when we're having perceptual experiences, right? So you can visualize a scene and that phenomenal character is quite similar to you know, seeing that scene. Also, you can hear songs in your head. Um, that's the sort of thing that um, goes under the label or the heading sensory imagination. All right, so here's the argument. As I'm, So the other caveat that I didn't mention um, is that for the sake of a bird's eye view of the dialectic, I'm going to offer extremely compressed um, summaries of the arguments that I'm attacking. Now, I'm hoping that I've distilled the key moves um, in such a way that the critical remarks that I'll make will stand, um, but there's a risk that you know, I've oversimplified rather than just simplified, and I'm sure people in the audience will let me know if that's what I've in fact done. <laughs> but so, so here's my very brief uh, uh, reconstruction of the argument um, in the paper, The Transparency of Experience. So premise one of my reconstruction, um, I think, is unobjectionable. So when I sensorily imagine a banana, uh, the claim is that the situation I imagine contains a banana, right? Now, I take it that this is unobjectionable because this is just what it is to imagine a banana, right? If the situation you've imagined doesn't contain a, a banana, then whatever you've imagined, you haven't sensorily imagined a banana, right? So any account of what's going on in sensory imagination better have it be the case that in this scenario you're sensorily imagining, there's a banana somewhere in there, right? So I take it that's, that's straightforward. Premise two is probably the most controversial move in the argument. Um, so this is what, what Martin calls the dependency thesis. And the claim is that to sensorily imagine a banana just is to imagine having an experience of a banana. Now, so much of the paper is devoted to um, defending this substantive claim about what sensory imagination is. I'm going to grant it, or as I'll explain, something very much like it for the sake of argument. So I'm not going to go into the details for the case for it. I'm just going to grant um, that those considerations stand. Okay, so the third move in my reconstruction of the argument says that if an experience of a banana doesn't have a banana as a constituent, then the situation I imagine doesn't contain a banana. And this seems unobjectionable on the face of it, given the dependency thesis, right? So if all you do, if all there is to sensorily imagining a banana is imagining having an experience that you could have in the total absence of bananas, then imagining having that experience isn't sufficient to get the banana into the imagined situation, right? So how we get from there to naive realism is by noting in premise four, naive realism is the only view out there on which an experience of a banana has a banana as a constituent, right? So remember that according to naive realism, a vertical experience of a banana fundamentally consists in the following state of affairs. The subject perceiving a banana and certain of its properties like yellowness and crescent shapedness. Um, so given that that's what vertical experience fundamentally is, right, the banana is a constituent of that state of affairs, which is the experience, right? So a banana is in the imagined situation. 
right? But now think about naive realism's rivals, right? Like um, intentionalism. They characterize experiences of bananas as states one could be in regardless of whether there are any bananas around, right? One can visually represent that there's a banana before one in the total absence of bananas, right? So, I mean, this is typically taken to be a strength of intentionalism because it provides a handy way of accounting for hallucination. But the point of this argument to say is, well, what, what is viewed as a strength in the context of accounting for hallucination is a weakness in the context of accounting for sensory imagination because imagining having an experience as the intentionalist construes it isn't going to get the banana into the imagined situation. Right? So once we've got all that on the table, we can, cl can conclude that naive realism is required to explain how bananas get into sensory imaginings of them, right? So given this substantive claim about what sensory imagining is, the dependency thesis, right, that imagining, sensorily imagining a banana involves imagining having an experience of a banana, the only way to get the banana into the imagined situation is by imagining an experience that has the banana as a constituent, and only naive realism can deliver that, or so goes my reconstruction of the argument. All right, so here's my worry about this argument. It seems to me that the fourth premise um, isn't quite right as it stands, right? So the fourth premise says that naive realism is the only view on which an experience of a banana has a banana as a constituent, right? So that's not quite right because naive realism, of course, doesn't give that account of hallucinatory experience, right? And indeed, it, it ought not do that, right? Um, because you can have a hallucination of bananas in the total absence of bananas and any, any theory of perceptual experience should accommodate that. Right? So on any plausible theory of perceptual experience, a total hallucination as of a banana doesn't have a banana as a constituent. So of course, naive realism isn't going to say that. Right? So now, the crucial claim for the argument is that imagining having an experience as the naive realist construes it gets a banana into the imagined situation right? because the experience as the naive realist construes it has a banana as a constituent. But of course, this is going to be true only if the experience is veridical, okay? So it seems like we've got to strengthen premise two in order for the crucial claim to come out true, right? We need to specify that sensorily imagining a banana involves having a veridical experience of a banana. But once we've strengthened premise two in that way, premise three of the argument comes out false, right? You don't need the banana to be a constituent of an experience in, in order to get it into the imagined situation. Right? Because on any theory of a perceptual experience, um, an experience of a banana isn't veridical unless there's a banana there being perceived. Right? So imagining having a veridical experience of a banana on its own is going to be sufficient to get a banana into the imagined situation, regardless of our theory of its metaphysical structure. So once we say that, well, no, the way we have to understand the dependency thesis in order for this argument to work is to say that sensorily imagining a banana involves or just is imagining having a veridical experience of a banana, it doesn't matter what our theory of the metaphysical structure of veridical experience is, right? Because in order for an experience to be veridical, to be veridical, there has to be a banana there being perceived, right? So it automatically gets into the imagined situation, regardless of our theory of the metaphysics of veridical experience. So th this is why I'm not persuaded by this particular argument for naive realism. So let's move on to the next one, um, the one that sort of construes naive realism as a crucial component of a certain kind of anti-skeptical strategy. So this, this argument is often attributed to John McDowell. Um, as, as I'll explain in a little bit, 
it's not clear to me that John McDowell actually endorses naive realism, but um, a lot of people sort of find something like the following case for naive realism in his work. So here, very roughly, is the argument for skepticism about the external world this, uh, this strategy is supposed to attack, right? So it starts with the idea that a hallucinating subject has exactly the same perceptual evidence for claims about her environment as the subject of an indistinguishable veridical experience, right? So for example, somebody enjoying a subjectively indistinguishable hallucination as of a banana to the one that I'm having right now could have exactly the same perceptual evidence for claims about her environment as I do, right? Now, if we grant that, if we grant the skeptic that, it seems like our perceptual evidence is going to underdetermine claims about the external world. And so we're not going to be in a position to know such claims, right? So the evidence I get from having the perceptual experience I'm having right now provides just as much support for the claim that I'm a brain in a vat enjoying a hallucination as of a banana as it does for the claim that there's a yellow crescent-shaped banana before me, right? And if that's right, if my perceptual evidence doesn't support one of those hypotheses over the other, skepticism follows, right? That's a sort of really quick reconstruction of a certain kind of skeptical argument. All right, so here's the anti-skeptical strategy. So what, I mean, so this is, I think, what McDowell is doing, right? So the first thing to do is reject the starting point, right? So insist that the subject of a veridical experience has more perceptual evidence than her hallucinating counterpart, right? Evidence that's sufficient to put her in a position to know things about her environment. So that, I think, is what McDowell's up to, right? So the idea is that we need to be disjunctivists about perceptual evidence, right? To say that the evidence that one gets from having a veridical experience is more and better than the perceptual evidence that one gets from having a subjectively indistinguishable hallucination, right? So the that doesn't, of course, get us to naive realism quite yet. The crucial claim you need to add to get an argument for naive realism is that naive realism is the only way to make sense of the idea that the subject of a veridical experience has more perceptual evidence than her hallucinating counterpart does. Right? So that I'm not so convinced that McDowell would endorse. Right? So as I'll explain, I think that there are ways of um, endorsing disjunctivism about perceptual evidence, if you like, without endorsing naive realism or disjunctivism about the metaphysical structure of perceptual experience that goes along with naive realism, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so, so we've got this disjunctivism about perceptual evidence response to the argument for skepticism that I just outlined, and then in order to get an argument for naive realism, you need to say, well, look, naive realism is the only way to make sense of that claim, right? So how might that, how might that argument go? Well, so you might say something like this if you're a fan of this motivation for naive realism. You might say, well, look, since the naive realist holds that my veridical experience fundamentally consists in my seeing this banana right here and its yellowness and its crescent-shapedness, she can say that my perceptual evidence includes the claim that I see this banana and its yellowness and crescent-shapedness. The idea is that that's perceptual evidence I have in the vertical case that a hallucinating subject wouldn't have, right? And if, if I indeed have this perceptual evidence, it would be excellent evidence for claims about my environment, right? Because the fact that I see this banana and its yellowness and so on and so forth entails that this banana is yellow crescent-shaped, and before me, that's just what it is to see a banana and to see its yellowness. You can't see the banana and see its yellowness unless, it's banana, uh, unless the banana is before you and it is, in fact, yellow, right? So the idea is that, well, look, if naive realism allows us to say that that's part of our perceptual evidence, 
Um, then we'll have perceptual evidence that entails that there's a yellow crescent-shaped banana before us, which is more than enough to put us in a position to know that there is, right? So, so that's the anti-skeptical strategy cast as an argument for naive realism. Okay, so I have a couple of worries. I have, I have a lot of worries about this particular motivation for naive realism, and I, I, won't, I won't outline all of them. So I, I go into a lot of this in much more detail in a paper that's recently come out called The Skeptic and Naive Realist. But I'm just going to sort of briefly gesture at, uh, I think, the, the two biggest worries I have about this motivation for naive realism. So the first one is that this is kind of a, a precarious dialectical position for the naive realist to, to leave himself in, because the anti-skeptical strategy is very controversial and not obviously viable, right? So, so here's a very natural thought that people with skeptical inclinations have upon hearing this sort of strategy. Well, how can the claim that I see this banana, right? How can that be part of my perceptual evidence when I could have a subjectively indistinguishable experience that doesn't involve seeing it, right? I mean, just because my experience fundamentally consists in my seeing the banana, suppose we grant the naive realist that, it doesn't obviously follow that the fact that I see it is perceptual evidence that I have, right? I need to have some sort of epistemic access to that fact, which seems to be precluded by the subjective indistinguishability of seeing and hallucinating. Right? So I'm not saying that there aren't moves that can be made in response to it, but the anti-skeptical strategy, before you even tack naive realism onto it, is extremely controversial, right? Now, I think the more worrying thing um, from the perspective of the naive realist is that it's just not obvious that naive realism is a necessary component of this anti-skeptical strategy, right? So one way to see this is that, well, you could say, well, look, what prevents the naive realist's opponent from holding that my perceptual evidence includes the claim that I see this banana, et cetera, so on and so forth? I mean, the intentionalist doesn't hold that my vertical experience fundamentally consists in my seeing this banana. That much is true. But why exactly is that required for the corresponding claim to be part of my, my perceptual evidence? Right? So it's not as if I think that this, this strategy um, can't be patched up. Right? I mean, you could sort of shore up the general anti-skeptical strategy, and you could, you know, the general anti-skeptical strategy, and you could, you know, add further claims to the, the distinctively naive realist part of it to explain why only naive realism can um, give you the claim that the fact that I see this banana and its yellowness is part of my perceptual evidence. It's just not, it's not at all clear to me um, how to fill in those gaps, right? So I don't find this argument satisfactory. I think maybe it can be made to work, but I think a lot more work needs to be done and it's not clear to me how to proceed, right? Okay, so, so much for that motivation for naive realism. Let's move on to the final one I'll be discussing. So this is... Um, Naive realism is an explanation of certain representational capacities that we have. So this is an argument I've extracted and you know, ruthlessly summarized for the sake of being able to, to talk about it in a reasonably short period of time. Uh, but it's in um, John Campbell's 2002 book, Reference in Consciousness. And I take it the basic idea is that he often puts the motivation in slightly different terms, but I think that ultimately this is the, the fundamental argument. So the first premise says that perceptual experience explains our capacity to consciously represent objects, right? So we have this capacity to be in representational states. They're conscious, and they represent particular objects 
in our environments, right? You know, for example, my current belief that there's a banana before me, right? So I have the capacity to get into that state. It's conscious and it involves representing a particular object in front of me, right? And so the question is, where do we get that capacity from? How did we get that capacity to be in those sorts of states? And what, what Campbell suggests is that, well, we get it from having experiences, right? That's how we get the capacity. Okay, so then the second move in the argument says, well, look, if experience is what explains our capacity to consciously represent objects, it can't fundamentally consist in exercising that capacity, right? It can't fundamentally consist in representing particular objects as being certain ways. So, I mean, it seems plausible that if a state fundamentally consists in exercising a given capacity, it can't explain how we acquired that capacity in the first place. It would be presupposing what it's supposed to be explaining. Right? So if perceptual experiences just are conscious representations of objects in our environment, as an intentionalist would have it, then perceptual experiences can't explain our capacity for consciously representing objects, as the first premise says it should be doing. Right? So then I take the argument to go pretty quickly from here, um, because you say, well, look, what are our options as far as the theory of perceptual experience is concerned? We've got intentionalism. Well, the considerations just outlined seem to rule that out. Um, well, then we should go with naive realism. It's the only viable alternative to a view on which um, uh, having a perceptual experience fundamentally consists in conscious representations of objects. Right? So the idea behind the strategy is to say, well, look, naive realism, unlike its main competitor, has the resources to explain our capacity to consciously represent particular objects. Right? It can do so in terms of perception of those objects. Right? So the thought is that perceiving an object is a more primitive state than consciously representing it as being a certain way, consciously representing this banana as being yellow, right? Perceiving that banana is more primitive, and my being in that state can explain how I get this capacity to, for example, believe that this banana is yellow and before me, right? So the thought is, in order for experience to be what explains how we get this representational capacity, it has to consist in something more primitive than the exercise of that capacity. And the naive realist says, well, that's being in the state of perceiving things in our environment. Okay, so, I mean, I think this, this way of motivating naive realism is interesting, but again, it sort of has, it has a hole that I'm not really sure how to fill, right? And so here's my worry in a nutshell. It's not obvious to me that experience is what explains our capacity to consciously represent objects. So I'm just not sure why we have to accept the first premise of Campbell's argument, at least as I've construed it. Right, because there's an equally plausible, at least on the face of it, alternative hypothesis, right? which would be that this capacity to consciously represent particular objects has been bestowed upon us by natural selection, right? that we already come to the world having this capacity right? Um, you know, before we've ever had any perceptual experiences. That's, that's a view that, you know, on the face of it, you, know, you need to do some work to rule it out. right? Now, of course, it may well be true that you've got to have perceptual experiences in order to activate or maintain the capacity, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't seem all that surprising if it turns out that a person deprived of all, all sensory stimulation from birth couldn't consciously represent particular objects, right? But, but even if experience is necessary to activate the capacity that you already had or to maintain the capacity, for all Campbell has told us in reference in consciousness, the capacity itself is something that we have before having any perceptual experiences at all, and so not the sort of thing that we get from having perceptual experiences. Okay, so I mean, in a nutshell, it seems to me that this way of motivating 
naive realism presupposes a pretty heavy-duty form of empiricism, and there's just not, not been enough done to motivate that starting point. Right? There, there's a more rationalist story about how we come by this capacity for consciously representing per, um, particular objects that hasn't been ruled out. So I'm not willing to put all of my naive realist eggs in that basket either. Okay, so, so if you're attracted to naive realism, the question is, where do we go from here? And so this brings us to the last section of the talk um, where I offer what I take to be a more promising argument for naive realism. So the basic idea um, to be fleshed out in a lot more detail over the rest of the talk is that naive realism provides the best account of the phenomenal character of veridical experience, right? Now, uh, first thing to note, um, I'm only, for the rest of the talk, going to be focusing on what naive realism says about the phenomenal character of veridical experience. Um, I'll turn all too briefly to the question of what the naive realist should say about non-veridical experiences and their phenomenal character at the end. Right? I mean, everybody knows that that's a challenge for the naive realist, but um, like I said in the beginning, what I want to do in this paper is get you know, clear on why we should be naive realists in the first place and leave those problems that sort of come with disjunctivism for another time, right? So I'm just going to be talking about the phenomenal character of veridical experiences. Um, and another thing I should note is that the argument that I'm going to present is inspired by ones given by Mark Johnston and Bill Fish. Um, it differs in a number of details, and it's not, I still haven't worked out the extent to which this argument is really just making the same point. I mean, it might just be getting at the same point and packaging it differently, um, but there are definite uh, points of contact, but I'm not sure that they would endorse everything that I'm about to say in presenting the argument. So, all right. So here's how I'm going to start at least my way of framing um, the argument. So the thought is that we can situate views um, about the relationship between the phenomenal character of veridical experience on the one hand and the properties of mind-independent objects one perceives on the other on a spectrum. Right? So we've got two things, the phenomenal character of vertical experience and the properties of the mind-independent objects one perceives in the course of having that experience. And there, there's a spectrum of views um, about the relationship between those two things. So I've called one extreme Kantianism. Um, so this label seemed appropriate uh, given my sort of embarrassingly limited familiarity with Kant. So people who know more about Kant might not think that this label is entirely appropriate. But I do think it's sort of, it has a sort of Kantian flavor to it. So that's why I chose the label. So, so, he, so here's, here's how I came by the label. So Kant, of course, is often interpreted as holding that we can't have knowledge of things as they are in themselves, independently of our experiences of them. The thought is, well, the only knowledge we can have of things is knowledge of how they affect us. And you can construct a view of phenomenal character that's in a broadly similar spirit. You might say, well, look, what it's like to experience a property is no guide to what things that have that property are like in and of themselves, independently of our experiences of them. What it's like to experience yellowness, the phenomenal character associated with experiences of yellowness, is no guide whatsoever to what yellow things are like in themselves, independently of our experiences. So to, to put the idea behind Kantianism a bit more precisely, we can do it in the following way. You say, well, look, the phenomenal character of a veridical experience can, in principle, vary independently of the properties of the mind-independent objects one perceives in the course of having it, because the former is entirely determined by features of the subject, which aren't determined by the latter. Right? So that, that's all very abstract, so it'll be clear in the context of a particular example of what I take to be a Kantian view. I think the most popular version of Kantianism is um, 
what, what's often called the mental paint view endorsed by Ned Block and others. So mental paint is just a, a metaphor for intrinsically non-representational qualia, right? So these are, are features of the experience that determine what it's like to have the experience. And these features represent certain properties, but they could have represented properties other than the ones that they actually do, or none at all, right? So for example, when I have an experience of a yellow thing, my experience instantiates a quale that partially determines the phenomenal character of my experience, right? It's what's responsible for the so-called phenomenal yellowness, right? And this quale, in fact, represents yellowness, right? So it is representational, but not intrinsically so in the sense that if things had gone differently, right? Like if the course of human evolutionary history had diverged in such in a way to result in, you know, a different wiring of human brains, that quale could have come to represent a different color property, right? Greenness instead, right? So, so that's the mental paint view in a nutshell. And this is a version of Kantianism, right? Because on this mental paint view, the phenomenal character of my experience is determined by something that isn't determined by the properties of the mind-independent objects I perceive, right? So what's determining a phenomenal character is a quale connected to yellowness only by the contingent fact that it happens to represent yellowness, could have represented something totally different, right? So you've got this sort of in-principle variation between you know, the properties I perceive in the course of having the experience and what determines the phenomenal character of my experience, right? So that's one extreme of the spectrum. Um, the other extreme I've dubbed Barclay and realism, right? So this is sort of inspired by um, uh, Bill Brewer's way of sort of introducing naive realism as basically being, well, the sort of view that, uh, you know, Barclay was after, except swap out, um, you know, the ideas um, with mind-independent objects, you know, that we know and love, like physical tables, chairs, cats, people, so on and so forth, right? So, so here's the idea. So Barclay held that what it's like to to have an experience is entirely determined by the properties one perceives. But of course, as I, as I suggested, for Berkeley, the objects that instantiate these properties were mind-dependent ideas. But the thought is, well, look, we can ditch the idealism and hang on to the first part of the view, right? And say that what it's like to have an experience is entirely determined um, by you know, the properties you perceive of the mind-independent objects you perceive, right? Instead of the ideas. Right, so, so this is what I take Barclay and realism to be. Phenomenal character of veridical experience is entirely determined by the properties of physical mind-independent objects one perceives. Now, there are a couple of different uh, views out there that I take to be versions of Barclay and realism. So um, I'd say probably the most popular version is what often goes by the name strong intentionalism. Right, so this is just the view that the phenomenal character of an experience supervenes on its representational content, right? So now, in the case of a veridical experience, its representational content is determined by the properties one perceives in the course of having it, right? So if I veridically perceive a yellow crescent-shaped banana, then the content of my experience attributes yellowness and crescent-shapedness to something. Otherwise, it's not going to be veridical. So we've got this determination of the content um, in the case of veridical experience, by the properties of mind-independent objects I perceive, right? Now, if the representational content of a vertical experience determines its phenomenal character as, as the strong intentionalist has it, then the properties one perceives determine phenomenal character by way of determining representational content, right? So this is a view on which the phenomenal character of vertical experience is ultimately determined 
by the properties of mind-independent objects one perceives. So it's a version of Barclayian realism as I'm thinking about it. Okay, so those are what I take to be the two extremes of the spectrum. You've got Kantianism on the one end, you've got Barclayian realism on the other, and I think neither extreme is particularly attractive. So I'll, I'll outline my worry about Barclayian realism first. So a consequence of the view is that any two experiences that involve perceiving the same properties of mind-independent objects are going to have the same phenomenal character, right? So if two experiences involve perceiving a banana's yellowness and crescent-shapedness from exactly the same location, then they're going to have the same phenomenal character. That's just, that falls out of Barclayian realism as I've characterized it. But as is familiar um, from a lot of the literature generated by strong intentionalism, um, this is at least on the face of it problematic, right? So it seems very plausible that features of the sense organs the subject uses to perceive, they're going to make a difference to phenomenal character, right? So just to take one example, suppose that there are aliens whose visual systems are sensitive to the same properties that human visual systems are, right? So the same colors, same shapes, so on and so forth. However, let's also suppose that they have compound eyes, similar to, to those of many earthbound insects. Now, here are two things that seem plausible, right? So given how, given the stipulations of the case, a human and an alien could have an experience in which they perceive all and only the same properties, and yet the phenomenal character of their experiences, it seems to me, would be, would be at least somewhat different, right? Due to the fact that they're generated by radically different visual organs, right? Now, if that's right, that's a problem for, I mean, if that's a genuine possibility, that's a, a big problem for Barclayian realism, because this would be a case in which the properties of mind-independent objects one perceives don't completely determine the phenomenal character of one's experience, right? Features of one's sensory apparatus can play a role, too. And there are a bunch of other ways of making this the same point. Like, it can be made less exotically by appealing to the fact that some properties can be perceived in, in more than one modality and intuitively there would be a phenomenal difference between you know, a visual uh, experience of you know, crescent-shapedness and a tactile one. And of course, you know, strong intentionalists have a lot to say about you know, in an attempt to explain away the apparent possibility of these scenarios, right? But in this context, all I want to insist upon is that these cases of a difference in phenomenal character without a difference in properties perceived, they're prima facie plausible. And denying their possibility, being in a situation where you have to explain the, the apparent possibility away, that's a bullet to bite. And so it would be better, all things considered, if we had a theory of phenomenal character that could straightforwardly accommodate these kinds of cases. I mean, I mean just a, a very general way of gesturing at the point, it, it just seems on the face of it really implausible that certain features of what we use to perceive the world would leave no trace in phenomenal character whatsoever, right? Experiences are just brute openness to what's going on around you. And you know, the means by which you use to perceive all of that stuff, you know, it could be radically different, um, but it leaves no, no trace in the phenomenal character of the experiences of the you know, uh, creatures with the different sense organs, right? That, it just seems really implausible. Okay, so... That's my worry about Barclayian realism. I'd rather not bite that bullet if I didn't have to. I don't want to try to explain away the apparent possibility of these sorts of cases. Now, I have a worry about Kantianism as well. I think Kantianism is more plausible on the face of it, but only with respect to experiences of some properties, right? So in particular, 
I think that Kantianism seems plausible with respect to experiences of color properties, but I don't think it seems plausible with respect to experiences of shape properties. Right, so now, now think about the phenomenology of color experience, right? It, it seems hard to resist the conclusion that when it comes to the phenomenology of color experience, we're bringing a lot more to the table than the color is, right? I mean, so if, if you think that yellowness is a messy disjunction of uh, surface spectral reflectance properties, as physicalists about color have it, it seems plausible that what unifies that category, the category of yellowness, is the fact that our visual systems happen to respond to the disparate surface spectral reflectance properties in the same way, right? So it seems like you know, once we've done a little bit of the metaphysics of color, and if, if you end up in a sort of physicalist endpoint, um, then it seems, well, look, what's, what's responsible for the phenomenology of, you know, um, experiences of yellowness? Well, it seems like it's a lot more down to us than down to, you know, the physical properties of this thing, right? But that doesn't seem to be what's going on when it comes to the phenomenology of shape experiences, right? It's natural to suppose that the shapes themselves are doing most of the work in determining phenomenal character, right? So it seems like the similarity between experiences of, of crescent-shaped things tracks an underlying similarity in the things themselves, right? How their molecules are arranged into a particular orientation, right? So I think that because of the fact that Kantianism is, while plausible with respect to experiences of some properties, but not very plausible with respect to experiences of others, we shouldn't endorse a theory of perceptual experience that assumes it, right? I think that Kantianism, we should endorse a theory of perceptual experience that allows us to argue for Kantianism on a case-by-case -case basis, right? <laughs> a theory of perceptual experience that's flexible in a way that um, you can be a Kantian about experiences of, um, of, of color properties, but not with respect to experiences of shape properties. I think that would be the ideal sort of theory of perceptual experience, okay? So, so much for the extremes um, of, the, of the spectrum. Uh, I think we need to, because of the problems I've been gesturing at, um, it would be best if we could find a, a middle path between them. And I think naive realism offers us just that, right? So remember, going back to, to the very beginning, what I said was, well, here's what naive realism holds about veridical experience. Veridical experience, including its phenomenal character, fundamentally consists in the subject bearing the perceptual relation to things in their environment and some of their properties, right? Now, I think what's great about that view is that in accounting for phenomenal character, the naive realist can appeal to both relata, right? Both sides of the perceptual relation in explaining why, if, why a perceptual experience, a veridical experience, has the phenomenal character it does, right? So, the naive realist can say that the phenomenal character of uh, my vertical experience of the banana is determined not just by yellowness and crescent shapedness, but also by the fact that I see these properties as opposed to you know, perceiving them in some other modality. And also, the phenomenal character is also partially determined by certain facts about my visual system, right? That I'm seeing these properties through a simple eye rather than a compound one. So I think what the naive realist theory allows us to do in accounting for phenomenal character is navigate a middle path by saying, well, look, what, what ultimately grounds phenomenal character, at least in the case of veridical experience, is the obtaining of this state of affairs, the subject bearing the perceptual relation to the banana and some of its properties. And in explaining the phenomenal character of experience, we can appeal to properties that the banana has 
and you know, features of the visual system and the perceptual system of the subject. Right? So I think naive realism offers us a happy medium. Now, an important thing to note is that this view is compatible with there being properties such that the phenomenal character of vertical experiences of them is entirely determined by facts about the subject, right? So you might think when you sort of reflect on the metaphysics of color, right, you might be led to Kantianism. That's okay. That's compatible with naive realism. There could be cases, there could be properties such that the phenomenal character of experiences of them is entirely down to the subject end of the relation, right? That, that is... That is a possibility with the naive realist view. But the great thing about it is that you can say, well, experiences of other sorts of properties, like shape properties, you know, maybe what's on the, um, the object end of the relation is doing more of the work in determining phenomenal character. So it has that nice sort of flexibility built into it. Okay, so the case for naive realism is, of course, as you'd imagine, not complete, right? Because uh, naive realism doesn't offer us the only happy medium between the two extremes. Another way we could go is to be weak intentionalists, right? So one version of a weaker form of intentionalism um, than the one I described earlier is to say, well, look, the phenomenal character of an experience is determined not just by its content, but also by the attitude the subject bears to that content, right? So for example, you could say, my phenomenal character of my veridical experience of a yellow crescent-shaped banana could be determined not just by the content, say, you know, the proposition that there's a yellow crescent-shaped banana before me, but also by the fact that I bear the attitude of visually representing to that content, right? So you could be an intentionalist and account for the features of the subject that are presumably playing a role in determining phenomenal character by packing them into the attitude, as it were. That, that would be the strategy. Now, I don't like this way of trying to navigate the middle path between um, Berkeley and realism and Kantianism, because I think that any version of intentionalism is going to face a certain kind of skeptical worry. So the worry is um, nicely expressed by uh, Mark Johnston in um, his paper, The Function of Sensory Awareness. So, so I'll, I'll just read out the quote and explain what I take it to mean. So here's what Johnston says. He says, if sensory awareness and thus phenomenal character were representational, we would inevitably face the skeptical question of how we could know that the human style of representation is not entirely idiosyncratic relative to the intrinsic natures of things. Right? So here's what I take him to be suggesting, and I think this is a really powerful point in favor of naive realism at the end of the day. Say, so, well, look, suppose phenomenal character consists in representing the world as being a certain way. If that's right, I think Johnston's pointing out that we can't rule out that what it's like to perceive something is radically different from and provides no insight whatsoever to what that thing is like in itself, right? So he's articulating a certain kind of skeptical scenario, and here's the, the structure of it. It could be that our experiences enable us to get around the world just fine, but that's only because the world as it appears to us is isomorphic to things as they are independently of our experiences of them, right? So the thought is that the way things appear to us constitute a certain kind of phenomenal world that's grounded in a, a noumenal world that's in principle inaccessible to us in some sense, right? There's no way we could rule that out, is what Johnston's saying, if we account for phenomenal character along intentionalist lines, either weak or strong, right? So to make this a little less abstract, suppose, I think plausibly, that seeing crescent-shapedness more or less reveals what crescent-shaped things are really like in themselves, independently of our experiencing them. Now, 
Of course, representations can be totally different from what they represent, right? So if the phenomenal character of our experiences of them is merely a matter of representing crescent-shapedness, we couldn't rule out the possibility that the phenomenal character determined by a representation of crescent-shapedness provides no guide whatsoever to what crescent-shaped things are like in and of themselves, independently of our experiences of them. Right? But I think naive realism doesn't face this kind of skeptical worry, right? Because if the properties perceived at least partially constitute what it's like to see them, right? crescent-shapedness is literally part of the experience. It's literally part of what's grounding the phenomenal character, at least in the veridical case. Right? Then we can know that the phenomenal character of vertical experiences gives us at least some insight into what things in our environment are like independently of our experiences, at least when it does, right? I think the naive realist should leave it open that perhaps, you know, it's not always the case that experiences and their phenomenal character give us insight into what things are like. That might well be the case with color. But at least sometimes, right, what it's like to have an experience is a guide to what things in your environment are like, right? So that's, that's the basic idea. So since naive realism says that, well, look, the banana and its crescent-shapedness is literally a constituent of the ground of the phenomenal character, then this sort of skeptical worry doesn't arise, right? So the basic idea is that as, as long as there's a, a metaphysical gap, right, between what's determining phenomenal character of a certain property and the property itself, these kind of skeptical worries are going to always arise. And the only way to cut them off is by packing the banana and its properties into the experience itself, as it were, right? So I think that's an advantage naive realism has over its competitors, right? Okay, so just to, to sum up, so I think that the best account of phenomenal character is one that allows for the possibility that features of both the subject and the object of experience play a role in determining phenomenal character. Right, so that's one desideratum. And another desideratum is that it shouldn't leave us saddled with skepticism about whether what it's like to experience a property is a guide to what things with that property are like in themselves, right? It seems like for the reasons Johnston is pointing to, any version of, of intentionalism is going to leave us in that predicament. So I think only naive realism can satisfy these two desiderata. Okay, now, as I, as I alluded to earlier, of course, the naive realist isn't home free at this point, right? So... I think naive realism offers the most promising count of the phenomenal character of vertical experience, um, but it remains to be seen, I think, uh, whether it can offer a plausible count of uh, the phenomenal character of non-vertical experiences, especially hallucinatory experiences. And I'm optimistic that it can, but um, I don't really have time to elaborate and defend my grounds for that, optimista, uh, that optimism, but I'm happy to talk about them in the question and answer period if, if you're curious. So thank you very much.